Good morning. I'll be reading the second Bible reading this morning. Um, if you join me with your Bibles in Isaiah chapter 35. Uh, it's page 749 on my Bible or up on the screen behind me. And it's titled The Joy of the Redeemed. And that's what we've heard through the prayers and the kids' talk. It's those who have asked the Lord for forgiveness, who love him and serve him and recognise him as the one and true living God. And that's a wonderful promise. Okay, chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendour of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendour of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, and say to those whose fearful hearts, with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open, the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and the streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground's bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass, reeds and papyrus will grow. A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. Only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Trish. Uh, excellent reading and introduction. And good morning again, everyone. My name is Pete, uh, one of the elders here. Uh, a great evangelist uh, once wrote uh, that this is the shape of the gospel. Uh, first, there is the bad news, and it's very, very bad. And then there is the good news, and it's very, very good. And if he's right, it just might be that between those two chapters, we're about to get one of the best explanations of the gospel ever. The first of our chapters will be bad news, very, very bad. And the second will be wonderful, wonderful news, very, very good. Let's pray that God will enable us to hear them both now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now as we come to Isaiah chapter 34 and chapter 35 that we would hear both the awful, awful bad news 
and the wonderful, wonderful good news and that for all of us we would run to Jesus and rejoice in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, I think one of the most confronting stories I've heard over the last year was from an old book, a hundred years or more old, uh, a book called uh, A Vision for the Lost. Uh, It was by a man named William Booth. uh, And in it, he says this, I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Uh, Over it, black clouds hung heavy. Through them, every now and again, a vivid lightning flashed and and thunder rolled and and wild winds moaned and and waves heaved and rose. And in that ocean, I thought I saw thousands of poor human beings plunging and floating and shrieking and shouting and cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose with its summit towering high above the black clouds. And around its base, I saw a vast platform. And onto this platform, I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who'd been rescued industriously working and scheming by by ladders and ropes and boats and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there, there were some who actually jumped back into the water, regardless of the consequences in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know what gladdened me most. The sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks, reaching at last the place of safety. Or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. As I looked, I saw the occupants on the platform were, were a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes and they occupied themselves with with different pleasures or employments, but but only very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me most was the fact that all of them had been rescued at one time or another. And yet nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed to me that the the darkness and the danger of it no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care. That is, any agonising care about the poor perishing ones who are struggling and drowning right before their very eyes many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. Now, I don't know about you. I find that story very confronting. 
I find it confronting, I think, because it places before me a, a picture of reality that I don't naturally see. A picture of reality which, if I'm honest, I don't want to see. But it shows me anyway. It opens my eyes and says, Look, this is real. This matters. It should make a difference. Whether you're in the ocean or up safe on the rock, this should make a difference to your priorities and your perspective, to what you think is your greatest need and to where you find your sweetest joy. This must make a difference. As we come to the book of Isaiah this morning, I want to say we come to a story just like that. A story on the one hand, every bit as awful. And a story on the other, every bit as wonderful as that story of the ocean and the rock. You remember last week in Isaiah chapter 33, we saw that just as God's people uh, thought that all hope was lost and that they'd gone too far and forgiveness for them was too much to ask, that Isaiah said no. And then Isaiah said yes. So loving is your God. So powerful is your King that even now he will forgive all who cry to him. Because of Jesus' death in our place, because he did what we couldn't do, you can be forgiven, Isaiah says, if you turn to him. And as we go on this week, Isaiah shows us, it seems to me, in no uncertain terms, why that really matters. And why it should give us so much joy. First, why it matters. Why does forgiveness from God so desperately matter? Because, Isaiah says, of the flood of God's judgment that is coming to you. Outspoken atheist Stephen Fry was once asked, What would you say if you ever met God? Do you know what he said? How dare you? That's what I'd say. How dare you create a world into which there's so much misery that's not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly evil. Why should I respect a a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that's so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say, Stephen Fry says. But Isaiah says, no, you won't. You won't be the judge when you and God meet. You won't be the one who acquits or condemns. He will. And if you come to him on the wrong side of him, if you come to him refusing his forgiveness, you will be swept away by the flood of God's judgment. And that's what Isaiah describes in chapter 34. Did you see it? If you have it open, chapter 34. It's the end time judgment. A judgment that is total and terrible and final. And which at one of the same time is necessary and right and comes from God himself. After all, you hear verse 1, how total this judgment is. Have a look. You nations, you peoples, 
all the earth, all the world, from the, from the mountains there in verse 3, all the way to the stars there in verse 4. There is no escape, this judgment of God. Like, like some awful tsunami that reaches the sky. Uh, like, like Noah and the ark, except without the ark. That's how total this judgment will be. And it will be terrible. Again, did you see? Like the worst atrocities you've ever seen. Think those pictures of the Holocaust with the bodies piling high. Or those pictures of the genocides from the, from the last 100 years. So that's what Isaiah wants you to do. He uses the horror that you and I have seen. He uses the horror that they would have seen. And then he says, if you like, hold that thought. Keep that picture. And now you're getting close to how bad this will be. Have a look there, verse 2. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. The dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. It will, it will be terrible, Isaiah says. And it will be final. When this judgment comes, then that's all she wrote. No, no second chance, no kind of purgatory payoff. You see it there, verse 10. It will not be quenched night and day. Its smoke will rise forever and ever. From generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. In fact, so much so, did you notice as it was read that the only life that lives there now is wildlife. Did you see it there from verse 11? It goes on and on and on. It's just uninhabited ruins, overgrown by thorns, where the only life left is bird and beast. It's this picture of final and total destruction. You see, that's how total and terrible and final, the judgment of God will be. But that's not all it is. It's, it's also, at one and the same time, necessary and right and will come from God himself. If you remember last week, the place Isaiah left us was with this great hope that the king would finally come. And when he did, that he would rule rightly and righteously over all the world he'd made but of course for him to do that then all opposition must be stopped all rebellion must be quashed in his kingdom there's just one king opposition to him will not be allowed it's just as paul will say of jesus do you remember to the people of athens in Acts 17 in the past god overlooked such ignorance 
but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. And necessarily so. And rightly so. I mean, there must be a day of justice, mustn't there? If God is good and completely good, there must be a day when justice is done. For the thousands of children who are killed in the womb, for the daughters abused again and again, for the mother who's beaten by the man that she loves, for the Christians who've suffered because of their faith, there must be a day when justice is done. And you see, that's what God promises here in this chapter. Did you see it, verse 8? A day of vengeance, verse 8. Of retribution, verse 8. Of paying back wrong where wrong has been done. And we desperately need to know this, don't we? We desperately need this promise as, as we live in this world where justice is partial. And we live in this world where justice is thwarted. God says it will not always be that way. There will be a day when justice is done. And so do you see, we don't have to pay it back now. Romans chapter 12, do you remember? Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And especially, by the way, for the wrong done against him and his people. See, I think that's what it means there at the end of verse 8. You see where it says, to uphold Zion's cause. Why it refers to Edom, actually, again and again. You see, Edom was a nation that was basically famous for oppressing and opposing God's people. And Zion was the place where those people lived. And so, so here in Isaiah, God says, for those people, for my people, for my children, justice especially will be done. It reminds me a bit, um, I remember when uh, my daughter, Emily, uh, was little and she had some trouble with the kids at kinder, some wise to soul told her what she should say. Do you know what it was? You're supposed to say when you're in kinder, someone messes with you, you're supposed to say, no, stop, I don't like it. And as I, I will admit, over a protective father, I remember thinking, that's great, but it's not enough. And so I taught her to add a little something else. Do you know what it was? No, stop, I don't like it. And my daddy wants to meet you. And you see, so says God again and again throughout his word. To mess with God's people is to mess with God. And one day, rightly, justice will be done. And when it is, did you notice, he'll be the one to bring it. Did you see that all the way through there in verse 2? The Lord is angry. He will destroy or down in verse 6, the sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. Or, or for the Lord has a sacrifice. The Lord has a day in the, in the scroll of the Lord, from the mouth of the Lord. 
a favorite verse of so many Christians, of course, is if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? But the reverse is equally and awfully true, is it not? If the Lord was against you, then what hope would you have? You see, I think that's Isaiah's point. That's God's point. And that's why forgiveness so desperately matters. So desperately. I think it was uh, C.S. Lewis who once wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance at all. But if it's true, it is of infinite importance. And he's right, isn't he? If this is true, this really, really matters. <coughs> so friends, can we say, if you're here today and you're simply not sure of where you stand with God, we beg you to speak to someone today. There on the cross, Jesus has already faced this judgment for you. You don't have to face it alone. You can, you can stand behind him. You can find your shelter in him. If you he, if he like, he, he took on himself chapter 34. So that you could have chapter 35. And we beg you to accept it. And all of the joy of forgiveness and all that it brings. You see, chapter 34 ends there and, and chapter 35 begins. It's a bit like some brilliant shaft of light just, just suddenly breaks through. And did you notice, all of a sudden, everything's changed. Where once there was death, now there's life. Where once there was horror, now there's joy. It's like what you're watching on um, one of those fast-forward time-lapse kind of rainforest documentaries. I'm sure you watch them all the time. And, and the rain stops and the flowers come out and suddenly it's just light and life and only here did you notice, it's not in the rainforest. It's in the desert. Do you see it there, verse 1? Even the dead, dry desert bursts into bloom. And the crowd goes wild there in verse 2. In fact, not just the crowd, creation itself shouts and cheers as the pain of this life finally comes untrue. It reminds me of a, a, a kid's a story, one of the kids' Bibles at home. Is it, it, it retells a story of Mary. There she is. Uh, when she's seen, uh, artist impression, not actual photo, when she sees uh, the risen Jesus. And she runs and rushes to tell all the others that their saviour and friend is alive. And, and it says in my kid's Bible, and it seemed to her that morning, almost as if the whole world had been made new. Almost as if the whole world was singing. The trees... Tiny sounds in the grass, the birds, her heart. Was God really making everything sad come untrue? Was he even making death come untrue? And the answer Isaiah says is yes. Do you see? Verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Just like Jesus gave us that glimpse of as he walked this earth on his way to the cross, everything sad will come untrue. Everything bad will be undone. Down in verse 7, verse 7, the burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, and you remember the last chapter, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Light and life will return. You and I will return, Isaiah says. Everything sad will come untrue. And why? Because, Isaiah says, God is coming saving and redeeming and rescuing his people. See, all the way through that, that chapter 35, do you notice there are these, these beautiful pictures of God's saving work? From there, verse 5, his justice bringing salvation. Down in, in verse 9, his freedom bringing redemption. And then in, in verse 10, his, his danger removing rescue. But of course, the very best thing, the one that they all lead to, and in fact, all spring from, that the very best thing about being forgiven is God himself. It's that we will get to be with him. And wherever he is, joy is there too. And wherever he is, life is there too. It reminds me of a scene from the a very famous line, The Witch and the Wardrobe. I don't know if you remember the one where the, the ice queen is there traveling in her sled and looking very mean, and the sled starts to get bogged, and she's wondering why. And, and they look around, and, and the flowers are blooming, and they're wondering why, and then they work it out. The only thing it could be to kill her ice and turn back winter, the only thing it could be, what's that? Aslan is here. Aslan is back, and wherever he is, springtime comes with him. And so it is here, do you see? All the way through these verses, from the glory of God, there in verse 2, to the coming of God, there in verse 4, to the rescue of God, there in verse 10, and even, in fact, I think that highway there in verse 8, do you see it, That, that way of holiness, why is it called that? One answer, I suppose, is because only the holy will be allowed on it. And the next few verses seem to say much the same. But, but I wonder also, could it also be because that's where it leads? That's the one it takes you to. Who? Well, that same one Isaiah met at the start of the book, do you remember? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. No wonder then, right at the end of our our verses here and there in verse 10, they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. You see, that's your future, Isaiah says. 
if you stick with him, if you continue in his forgiveness, if you live upon the rock. And so do that, Isaiah says. Keep doing that, Isaiah says. If you jump back, chapter 35, verse 3, there in verse 3, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. See, the God's people back then with the enemy literally camped outside the gate, calling across the wall, as we'll see in the next few weeks, give up on your God. This is not true. He will not save. Isaiah says, strengthen your feeble hands. You are right to trust in him. And to God's people now, weary and wondering Is it all worth it? Worth all the cost? Worth being different? Worth being different to everyone else? To us, Isaiah says, be strong, do not fear. It is worth the cost. To the wonderful young lady who messaged me just this week saying, honestly, I can't find the motivation to do God's stuff lately. My non-Christian friends are so great and fun that meeting up with God's people doesn't seem appealing. To her, God says, don't give up. Not on God or his people. And to me, just yesterday, as I sat in a busy McDonald's there with my son, as I looked at all those people and thought of all this message and realized just how crazy this message must seem, To me, God says, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. See, more than 100 years ago, William Booth told this story of a raging ocean and a saving rock. And this morning, I think Isaiah tells us that story is real and it must make a difference. Whether you live in the ocean or whether you live on the rock, it must make a difference. There really is a judgment to come. There really is a wonderful hope. And that's why forgiveness so desperately matters. And that's why it should give us so much joy. Let's pray that it would. Let's pray. Our wonderful Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the forgiveness you offer us all in Christ, for salvation from judgment, for new life in you. We thank you too for confronting us this morning with this reality before us, a reality that we know should shape our priorities and perspectives and needs and joys. And we pray, our Father, that it would. Please help us, help each other to not be distracted or dulled to what really matters and to rejoice daily and always in what you've done for us in your Son. We pray all these things for Jesus' honour and glory. Amen.